Greetings humans and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 15, the podcast where I bother scientists and researchers and I ask them as many questions as I can until I understand what, how and why they do what they do. In this episode, we'll answer questions like what is an educational game, where can games be useful and what can we learn about human interactions using games. These questions will be answered by Dr. Maria Saridaki, a Play Studies researcher at the National and Kapodistria University of Athens. She was kind enough to sit with me and discuss games, how do we do research in games, and their role in education, and all kinds of things. But first, as usual, some housekeeping is in order. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to it and give it a share around your social media so that more people will listen to it and we can answer even more questions. I've also launched a weekly newsletter where I'll send you my favorite science news articles from around the digital world. You can subscribe to the newsletter at lefterisasks.com forward slash newsletter, all small letters. Or go to the show notes to find the link. Lastly, if you have any questions or suggestions, go ahead and follow me on Twitter at lefteris underscore asks and email me at lefteris at lefterisasks.com. Now, let's meet Dr. Maria Saridaki. My name is Maria, Maria Saridaki. I live and work in Athens, Greece. I'm affiliated with the University of Athens, uh, the Department of Communication and Media Studies. And uh, I've, be- I've been working mainly with games, playfulness and storytelling. First things first, I wanted to find out exactly what it is that you can study about games. Where do you start the journey of studying the effect of games and where has Dr. Saridaki ended up? When I was doing my master's in, in Glasgow in Stratford Clyde University, uh, it was about information management. But at that point, all my friends were playing lineage. Yes, we're old. Um, and I was intrigued by the commitment they had in the game. And what it tricked me the most was that I wanted to find out uh, what type of relationships they have in game, because they were talking a lot about their friends. And I wanted to see if they, they were able to construct friendships or, or what type of relationships they were doing. So back then I started doing um, very specific things, like, I, of course, I played, I observed, but then I had my questionnaires, I had a few interviews. I did my analysis, I used some specific, um, let's say, ways to, to figure out if it's friendship or not, and that's it. After that, when I returned to, to Greece, I realized that there is an amazing hidden potential in gaming regarding learning. Um, I had a very, very personal experience in which I realized that uh, my brother, who's a person with intellectual disability, he was able to learn to read the map Uh, because he had to learn it while he was playing a game. That was even more personal for me, as you can understand, and even more important because we're talking about intellectual disability. Intellectual disability, I mean, in, in, in its core has the very strong difficulties in learning and specifically in experiential learning. So for me, it was a wow moment, like, wow, we have a medium here in our hands that can achieve something that regarding that specific student is, if not unachievable, 
really, really difficult. And we're talking again about self-control learning, that I want to learn something. From that, I started my PhD regarding game, games-based learning and for people with intellectual disabilities. The way that I did research, it was, I tried almost everything. So I, a lot of observation, uh, participatory or not, uh, in classroom or outside of classroom, uh, with the teacher, without the teacher, with every single type of game you can imagine. Uh, commercials of the self games, uh, really good quality educational games, really poor quality free entertainment. I was always very intrigued on what is happening? Guys, what's going on here? I wanted to see what are the different parameters that we don't take into consideration. When I got my answers in that part, I started doing um, different types of uh, uh, researches and I was using completely different tools than the usual that we use in social studies. Uh, so I, I used interaction analysis or to, to say it in a simple way, it's video analysis. So you use a video and you document what's going on. It has been used specifically for interactions, either between uh, people or people and animals, or the, the last 10, 20 years, 15 years, uh, between um, computer and, and human. So human-computer interaction. Uh, so I did that a lot because I wanted to have much more data than I had using my own senses. Interaction analysis uh, evolved me as a researcher and as a human being because it allowed me to understand that the way that I perceive reality, it's really confined and that I had to take into consideration so many different aspects. The camera helped me, helped, helped my eye and my ears to, to um, have a better training. Um, I can talk forever regarding interaction analysis, but uh, imagine that it allowed me uh, to do what I love to do the most, which is not only observe people when they are creating and they are being playful, but to help them uh, frame that, to, to help them organize that. So I started from rigid games limits and I ended up organizing super open labs of play where students would come and go freely and they would stay there, they would play or they would co-design a game or a playful experience, develop. And in the end of my PhD, I was talking about temporary autonomous zones and temporary playful zones, as I call them. I hope that through Dr. Sarizaki's story, you get an idea about what it takes and how someone can end up studying such a niche subject. So now we'll delve a bit deeper in Dr. Sarizaki's work, where she used the work of Erwin Goffman, who was a Canadian-born sociologist and created something called Frame Theory. I start explaining it, but I think Dr. Sarizaki does a much better job than me. Goffman tried to explain how people understand our interactions, the, the interaction, the social interactions that they happen. And uh, he tried to do that by saying that the way that we perceive our uh, communication is by using a frame, like a photographic frame, or, um, or I don't know, a wooden frame that you would put, you know, a, a painting in. 
And this frame needs to be structured, so we co-structure it together according to the norms, uh, according to society, according to our spatial relationship, according to what we want to achieve. And this frame also can break. This frame also can have small frames inside and outside. And um, this frame theory of his has been used extensively, uh, of course, in sociology, but also in media analysis uh, a lot, in order to understand realities, to, to, to understand the differences in, in the way that we perceive our uh, realities, let's say that, when we interact. Frame theory has been extensively used the last years in game studies. Because it's a way, for example, let's say, to understand difficult structures that have to do a lot with drama. For example, let's say that we have people playing live action role playing games, okay? Uh, they are playing a game. However, for them, it's a way that they can interpret the situation using their body, right? At the same time. So it's acting. And at the same time, they already know these people in real life, as we say, or in out-of-game life. So again, they have another layer of communication with them and experiences and feeling and emotion. And apart from that, there are so many different other, other la layers that they can happen. So when researchers were trying to understand what is going on here in a situation of role-playing game, there are all these different up-keyings, under-keyings, is it in-game? Is it out-game? Is it bleed? What is it in the situation? Goffman allowed, allowed us to have the proper terminology to explain this type of um, particular situations when realities were, had so many levels embossed on them. Um, and that's the, the, the main reason why I chose to use Goffman in order to analyze uh, what has been going on. So, because, for example, especially in, in, uh, in the educational context that I was, uh, we had so many reality frames. For example, um, Fine in, uh, in 1993 used to say that there are three different reality frames in an educational scenario. The primary is the school education frame, the second is the gameplay frame, and the third is the inner imaginary context. For me, working with people with intellectual disabilities and trying to see how they were interacting also, not only with the game, but with each other and with the teacher or with me, you can understand how many more frames we could have in this situation. And in order for me not to get completely crazy, I used exactly that. The frame theory that Dr. Saridaki chose was one of the schools of thought that exists in this field that might actually be more quantitative for interactions. However, Dr. Saridaki is more of a qualitative researcher and Goffman's frame theory fit perfectly for her scope. Continuing with our discussion, there were a lot of times that Dr. Saridaki had insightful comments that made me even realize the difference between experiences that I also had as a gamer or an improv performer. For example, what's the difference between gaming and playing? Game is a, is a system in which players can engage in an artificial conflict defined by specific rules that actually uh, results in quantifiable outcomes or outcome. While on the other side, play, let's say, is a 
it's a free movement inside, within a much more rigid structure. Uh, so in these two different definitions between game and play, you can already see when where you would put, let's say, World of, War, of, of Warcraft and where you would put an improv game. However, as a researcher, you realize that this can turn over in a second. For example, let's take WoW, for example, where people have a very specific player and they have to get that player to become much more powerful and they interact with other uh, players trying to succeed. Many times they will stop playing, they will start playing the game in order to share a joke or do something fun in the environment and make the, play, the other players laugh. And all of a sudden, they're not gaming, they are playing. You can have this type of free movements within a more rigid structure, but this rigid structure could be the city, could be a classroom, could be us now and I could start be super playful, or it can be a game because a game, you know, a very specific, uh, well-designed well and developed software is a structure. Dr. Sharedaki also has a wide range of research interests, always around games and interactions of people in games. During her PhD work, she briefly touched on another issue of games that had to do with space. Where does play or game happen? and how hard is it to compare games that happen between different spaces. I was always intrigued by what cities, how cities make you feel. So um, on the side, as if I didn't have enough things to do, on the side I started researching um, psychogeography and, and how that can be added in games. The city changes you as you walk through it and because the emotions that you have change according to how the landscape and the interactions with people change and so on and so forth. So spatiality for me, all of a sudden, became very interesting. And that's why I did many of urban games, festival and design. But at the same time, because I was doing my PhD and my, my research inside special education classrooms, again, space became super important, um, let's say, facilitator of the experience, or not, or the opposite, a block of the experience. The way that, the, the, the way that they would have the classroom, the, first of all, that they were inside the classroom and they, they, they would play a game. How the classroom would be organized. Where, where was the place for the computer? Where was the place for the teacher, if there was one? Would, Children would students be able to touch one another? Were they two in front of the laptop? Was it a laptop? Was it an iPad? Were they outside? so? All of a sudden, this type of 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 um, parameters became extremely important in my actual academic PhD research as well. So I took my experience from working with the city in the city with players into my into my uh, actual research in in an educational environment so that's why i told you before that in the end my phd ended up talking briefly because i wasn't bold enough <laughs> i didn't have the guts to go from education and games and disability to 
you know, temporary autonomous zone and uh, let's change society and freedom for all. I was like, okay, I will with that. Yeah. Um, so in the end, it, it was about um, how people construct pop-up spaces uh, of freedom, of free expression, of free interaction. And how can we have spaces that they are inclusive for everyone? And these spaces, they can break. Actually, they have to break. Remember the frame? Let, now we talk about the membrane. It's much more organic. Many more things can enter and go in and out. But it has to break in the end. Further talk about her work made me realize how hard it is to structure and research something so complex as human interactions, which are largely not very reproducible, at least with the naked eye. So what can be the outcome of a research like that? Because by knowing the outcome of a research, we can know how that can be applied further into society. One of the main outcomes of my, my PhD research, especially using Goffman, it's, it's that Learning doesn't happen only in flow when we're in this flow, in this amazing zone of, uh, you know, the best of ourselves when the stress is high enough and our ability and will is uh, high enough and this is the perfect zone to do. Learning also happens in intervals, in interruptions. For example, let's say that I am the, the most boring person that you have and I'm talking to you and talking about my research, you don't care. But all of a sudden, a cat just flies here on my lap. While I'm talking about why Goffmanian theory, uh, I don't know, uh, should be more evolved. At that specific moment, your memory, because emotions, I'm surprised, and I don't, it's very probable, probable that you, that will be the only thing that you will remember from me. And that was something that it was proven again and again and again. I won't say proven. I retract that. I, <laughs> that because it's qualitative. It's qualitative. Yeah. That we could see. Okay. We could see again and again. Uh, when I was, um, working with this type of interactions, uh, inside a classroom, a special education school cl classroom, um, this type of, um, intervals, when the frame would break to use a Goffmanian approach, students, all of a sudden had their senses much more elevated and they were eager to find solutions for the frame again to be constructed. So when we would help them with the proper tools, proper games, proper curriculum, proper facilitation by the educator or the facilitator that is there, if we could help them, they are actually being trained on how to construct frames on their own, AKA take empowerment in their everyday life. So apart from, so in my research, what I realized is that, I realized, I realized something that so many people have realized before me, is that a game doesn't need to be educational to be super, extremely powerful as an educator. It's, it's the play experience and our will to achieve and be part of it and be included in a play experience that 
can make us decide to tweak our brain. So we talked a lot about games and educational games, but in the end, what can make an educational game actually good? What should be considered to make an educational game useful to the player? So educational games, they started off as what we call chocolate-covered broccoli. That's how educational games started. So you would have an animation, you know, a cat and a dog saying something, doing something, and then they would have to cross the door, but in order you know, to open the door, you would have to say five and four. You know, how much? Now. And that was okay, and that's fun, and, you know, it has its purpose. For, but come on, that's not a game. Come on, that's not immersive. That's, that, 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 it is entertainment, and it's fine, and it has its cause, and it can definitely work. I have used it, and it works. But it doesn't change your brain. It doesn't make you want to change. So you need to have immersion. You need to have an aesthetic that it's meaningful for the player and for the, the learners that you want to, to attract. And uh, for me, I would say all these different things that concise a good game, but to cut a long story short, for me, for a good game to be, for a good educational game to be a good educational game, it needs, first of all, to be a good game. The educational part should be definitely embedded in the play, in the gameplay, in the playful experience, not as a content only. So for me, it's all about the experience. But even even if you do that, it might not work. Of course, even if you have the best educational game ever, it might not work because it might not be the best game for that specific students or for that or for that specific curriculum. When we are using educational games, we need to remember that they are a tool. A tool inside a very co- complicated designed process. So that's why I really believe that when you design educational games, you definitely need to work with educators. I know it sounds funny, but they don't do it. They design games and they just bring educators as and researchers as, you know, someone that they will work with. No, no, that person needs to be in the core team. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, when we design educational games, the, the clients are not the students. They are the school, the educator, and the parents. We need to help them use it in the classroom. So we need to take into consideration the process. How will the educator use this product, this tool, this experience in their educational scenario that day? Uh, And the third thing that I would say um, is that a good educational game, for me, needs to be of a high artistic value. And you don't really need that amount of money for that. Actually, to be honest, the, the, the best artistic games that I know are indie games. So not, not a big budget there, just a lot of passion. My feeling is that educa- if educational games have a better aesthetic, especially for the youngest generation, that is a very, very uh, demanding 
regarding their aesthetic outcomes, because we're talking about generations that they have so much artwork, even the memes that they're using are so aesthetically powerful that you cannot give them a game that is just text and really bad uh, graphics and, and believe that you know, this generation will, will care that much about that. So lastly, let's hear two examples of games that aren't meant to be educational, but Dr. Saridaki has seen surprising educational attributes that were presented after she taught and played the game. A friend of mine and colleague, uh, Sebastian Quack, uh, he's, uh, he's from Germany, he's, an, he's a game designer. He, has, he had designed, co-designed a game that it's called Turtle Wusu. It's a physical game in which the players are in a circle and you have your hands on the air with the palms down and you have each player has one small plastic turtle on their hand. And so the purpose of the game is uh, that you try to hit uh, the, the other player's uh, turtle while try to maintain your turtle on your own hand. So I've been using that game in intervals when we were having these play laboratories at the special education school. I've been using that game just, you know, to, to let them use their, their body. I, I would use it so that they can um, uh, learn how to hit someone without being hurtful, how they can touch someone and control their power, because that's a huge issue uh, for these people, to control their power and not seem aggressive when actually they are not. And it seemed that it was working. The one thing that I, I did not anticipate at all is that because the game uh, is consecutive and you have to wait your turn and then you hit the other, and the students, they understood the importance of waiting. And that was something that their educators saw. They realized it. They told me after playing that game, they told us that it's good to wait and uh, something happened in the classroom and someone wasn't waiting and the other student told that person, uh, please wait, do you remember how we do it with the turtles? Wait for me. And the other person said, okay. So they framed their experience, their actual life experience, using the game as a metaphor. And that's what good games do. Another game that it's super good. It's not a learning game, but it's uh, on the overall umbrella that it's, called, uh, the, uh, that it's called Serious Games. So educational games are part of what we call Serious Games, and Serious Games are games that they have specifically designed with another purpose apart from being fun. This purpose can be uh, educational, it can be pro propaganda, it can be also for to train. So it's not educational, but it's very specific. For example, there are many simulation-type games for pilots or for doctors. It's not exactly a game. The, the doctor doesn't care to win per se, but it has some gaming elements, so it's much more fun. Uh, and coming from that, I will take a non-educational game, but serious game, that it's not for students, and definitely it's not for people with disabilities. It's called Pedopriest. That was a game, that, that's a game that I, I've been using always when I was teaching um, journalists. I wanted to show them the importance of game as a communication medium and as a propaganda experience. 
they were always laughing at me because, you know, they create the propaganda and, and they think that that's the way to do it. So one of the games that I would ask them to play if they could, it's called Pinto Priest. It's designed by Molindastria. Molindastria is an unbelievable academic researcher and game designer that he's designing propaganda games. And he, he's just unbelievable, crazy political, very simple games. That, that, that's one thing that I would say if you want to understand what a game can do to you or how a game can speak about very difficult prob- problems and very difficult situations, check this out. So Pedopolis is a platformer. You see a house and there are kids and Catholic priests. The, the, the thing that you have to do is, as you, the player, you are the all-seeing eye, the communication specialist of the Vatican. And the one thing you have to do is, one, do not allow the priests to go near the kids. And two, do not allow, the I think, the police the, and the journalists to go near the priests as well, something like that, to, to keep them away. Okay? So the game, as a gameplay, is very playful and fun and childlike. You don't see anything vulgar. You don't see anything close to what that actually means. So I had very heavy gamers, male, around their 42, 45, very confident that, come on, this is a joke, that they couldn't play for more than a few seconds. The most amazing thing is that when they played the game, and we stopped, of course, super soon, and, and I asked everybody, can you see where is the propaganda here? Let's analyze it as a medium. You journalists. No one, no one even said the word. Yeah, but not all priests are atheists. It was unbelievable how that experience, because actually, of course, they were playing another role, but they got into the role of the victim, of course. For them, the experience was so traumatic that they didn't even started considering that game as a medium that has been designed specifically to convey one specific message. And I think with these two completely different examples, I can show you how games can actually change us and, and make us question even our own beliefs or to actually empower our beliefs and be a wonderful tool for propaganda. One of the most successful games, American's Army, is being funded by America's army. And it's one of the main recruiting tools for soldiers. And it's such a good game that two, three years ago, a, a gamer was able to save a person's life because of the skills that he got just by playing the game, the medical skills. And it's a really good game, and it's a learning game, and it's definitely a propaganda game. And that's it for another lengthier edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'd like to thank Dr. Maria Saredaki for her time, and if you want to find out more about her work, you'll find links for her work in the description of the show. If you'd like to help, then please share the episode with your friends, since that's the best way for the community to grow. You can always contact me on Twitter, at Lefteris underscore asks, for any suggestions or questions that you might have. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind.